Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I am Elin Fermier. Hi, everyone. As you might remember, last episode was Jenny's last episode. So you got a snippet of our new co-host, Ellen Fermer. But I thought it would be nice if before we move into the interview, we just get to know Ellen a little bit more. Hi, Ellen. Welcome to the AMA studio. Hello, everyone. How, how are you feeling? I'm nervous, but excited. <laughs> Can you introduce yourself a little bit to, to the people that are going to be hearing you here month after month? Yeah, for sure. Uh, my name is Elin. I'm a second year PhD student within the field of antimicrobial resistance. I work mainly with uh, combination therapy against gram-negative bacteria, mm-hmm. which I really enjoy. <laughs> it's very fun being a PhD student so far. Nice. Great. I'm really happy that you decided to join this project. Since you are a, a somewhat more junior PhD student, that means that you are going to be here with us for hopefully a long time, yeah, all throughout too. your journey of your PhD. And uh, I want to mention uh, also that you, Ellen, are part of the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. So you are one of the PhD students that are within our research school and our program. So it's even Uh, more important for us that you, as part of USC, uh, decided to take on on this quest and this adventure. Mm. So I guess with that, can you introduce the interview of today? Yes. So today we're going to hear a very interesting interview that Eva did with Professor Alison Pendeville on the 14th of December last year. So enjoy! Welcome to another AMR Studio interview. Today I'm here sitting with Professor Alison Prendiville. Alison, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? So I'm Professor of Service Design at London College of Communication, which is part of University of the Arts London. Nice. So service design, this is something that kind of caught my eye when you're here now because you were the opponent of a defense of a colleague of ours that did her PhD in AMR-related interventions in India. And when I saw your affiliation, I was wondering, how does service design relate to AMR? So can you tell us first, what is service design? So service design is a relatively new field of design. It's very interdisciplinary. It's highly collaborative. And basically, we take a systemic approach to dealing with complex problems and issues. But ultimately, also what we're looking from this systemic point of view is actually what sort of interfaces and design interventions can we put in place in order to reconfigure a system. Now, that's quite abstract, but we work in a very situated way in very local conditions. Mm -hmm. So you talk about design in general. So I guess your background is in design. Where, Where did you start working on? So my background is really hybrid. And in fact, I did start off with an interest in zoology and biological sciences. Then I actually changed my degree to a design degree. But again, it was more a design history with practice. So again, I got this very rich view of context and sort of historical trajectories. 
I then did a master's in design management, which was very applied around how organizations use design in order to innovate. Then I did my PhD, which actually was an industry-sponsored PhD within transportation. And that's when it was at the end of the century. So there was a shift in terms of from product design into more systems design and services. And that was also reflecting the arrival of new technologies. And then for my PhD within transportation, I looked at things like the seamless journey. And what you're looking at there is a service and how that service is configured, often from an engineering perspective, but you're looking at the how people interact as they try to move from A to B. Mm-hmm. I then went on to do a degree in anthropology with a specialism in digital anthropology. But again, that's my social science perspective yeah. on it. So I guess when we talk about design, just so we put people kind of in a bigger context, mm-hmm. we are talking about how do we arrange things around us. Can it, that be a, like a simple description of what design entails? So th- In a way, to understand it, it's helpful if we think about some of the methods we use. We use a lot of visualization methods. And what we're trying to do is understand the user experience Mm -hmm. or the user journey. Now, this is in its more sort of basic form. So what we might do is we look at the way that somebody uses a healthcare service, not just from the point that they enter the healthcare environment, but actually maybe how they understand their health at home, who are they talking to, how are they making decisions. But the important thing is that when we're actually doing the designing, we are using methods and tools in order to capture and visualize that. And the important part of this is that we use those visualizations as a means actually to enact discussions and co-create a shared knowledge around what the artifact is that we're looking at. So when I say we work collaboratively, we're not just working with other experts, but we're also working with the communities who we're designing with. And I say with as opposed to designing for, because actually it's very much about sharing knowledge. Mm -hmm. So it's about the interface, about what is it that people need And then the experts trying to meet those needs through the design and through the work that they're doing. Yes, I think in a way we are experts in the designing. But the idea is that we're facilitating what we call invisible knowledge, implicit knowledge, into visible forms of knowledge that actually other people can say, yes, actually, that is that does describe my experiences. Mm -hmm. And these become a way of working collectively to find solutions. Very interesting. So now I'm wondering, how did you move from working on transportation, as Mm -hmm. you did your PhD on, to something more related with health, like it could be antimicrobial resistance? So I did a lot of projects with local government, around local government services, particularly in the area of social care. And social care, of course, overlaps into healthcare. And what we're seeing is there's a lot of innovation within local government around how they design services with communities. And through that work, I then got involved with a colleague from Glasgow and King's College London, again, very diverse team of people, looking at re-envisioning infection practice ecologies in nursing. And one of the concerns was that nurses are really at the front line of AMR, but actually in terms of how that knowledge is understood across the healthcare sector, in terms of what those experiences are, Actually, it's a very, it's a situation where the nurses really don't, again, have much opportunity 
to mm-hmm. really articulate the challenges they face, the decisions they have to make. So we did a lot of workshops with groups of hospital and community-based nurses to visualize, they visualized very beautifully a day in the life of, but how they understood AMR, how decisions were made around the use of antibiotics, where the pressure points were in the system, but also how they could actually reflect on their individual practices, but how that actually had a knock-on effect on the wider system. Uh Uh-huh. So it's you guys, with that kind of work and project, you facilitated their own nurses group to understand how they are part of the solution to AMR, of how they how they work with the knowledge they have and what impact do they have in the whole ecosystem yes, and the, and the absolutely. whole healthcare system, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the thing is, because they're dealing every day with very high-pressured environments and also the systems that we have in place don't often give people an opportunity to actually voice where they say, well, if we had an intervention at this point, or actually if we worked differently here, we could address these particular problems. And actually by really elicitating that sharing, they really got involved with the idea that they had actually a lot of opportunity to really rethink some of the the problems that they're faced with. And we, in fact, synthesized all of this information. And then we ran a workshop with policy people. Again, very, uh, we created particular methodological tools to take that information from the nurses and to scaffold it into what would this look like in policy? Mm-hmm. What would this look like if we were to put nurses actually at the forefront of AMR within the community? So in a sense, it's a bit organizing the practical knowledge and work that is done without a structure. So how I see it is like these nurses have a lot of knowledge because of the experience that they have been gaining by being the persons that are in touch with the patients Mm. and they have to deal with those pressures and those urgencies and and the risk Mm. that they are also involved in. And there is uh, inherent knowledge and practices that are happening without really being control or being part of the policies that the healthcare workers might be working under, right? Absolutely. They're not really articulated. Firstly, they're not made visible because mm-hmm. within all our jobs, there's lots of things we do, which are what we would call there's hidden value. But also because of hierarchies and organizational structures, the nurses effectively go through their daily routines. But in fact, they have incredibly rich experience. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. of actually what it is to go into somebody's home, to have to put their bag down. They're facing challenges about, well, where do I I clean my hands when I've got the pressures of time to move to another house? All of this, once it's shared, you start to get a picture of what we call the pain points or the points where actually there could be interventions. Mm -hmm. And then in those interfaces is where you hope that the research and the knowledge that you shed light on might help further policies and further interventions and actions. Absolutely. And one of the things that we do is we futurize. So we do lots of speculative scenarios because actually what you're also having to do is take people on a journey of change because people are very entrenched in the way that they work. Yes, correct. And they're resistant with the idea that they don't want to give up power or they feel, again, maybe that they might be judged. But actually the way that we work is very equitable. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is offering, again, by designing with the people, a future scenario which actually instead of People thinking, well, you can't do this and we can't do that. There are sort of, it actually presents the possibilities. Mm-hmm. 
It's like a labyrinth, navigator in between yes. and see how you can get. I wonder, I know a little bit about behavioral change interventions mm. of the work that some people are trying to change how people relate to antibiotics. Yeah. And I see for what I'm learning now talking to you that the role of service design might be really important to achieve those behavioral changes that are at the core of the use of antibiotics. Absolutely. Again, when we look at service design has played a role in the behavior change. And there's been a lot of talk about sort of nudge where you put in an intervention and that will change behavior. In that sense, we'll call that service design intervention. And what you'll find is that it will very likely have impact on the system mm -hmm. further up. What we also try to do, though, because behavior change tends to put the onus on individuals, we sometimes come at it slightly differently. We go, let's look at the ecosystem, look at the relationships. And actually, what are the structures here? We understand the individual journey, but also what are the other bigger structural changes that need to be changed? Mm -hmm. And again, by making these visible, what you're doing is actually showing that, you know, you can have the best intentions in the world about raising awareness. But in fact, if you don't address what is, we call some of the backroom issues. Yeah, we would never really get that awareness to happen, right? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's all about the context and the possibilities within yeah. e every given scenario. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting, very interesting and very applicable work, I would say, on a lot of the things that are going on around on AMR. So what I understand, you worked a lot with nurses yep. before, and that's worked on in the UK, yes. correct? But you also have some work that you have developed with low and middle income countries. Can you tell us a little bit more about yes. that? Yes. So I've been working with a very brilliant team, very, again, interdisciplinary team with IIT Delhi, Edinburgh University, Bradford, Southampton. Assam University and Silcher Medical School. And we've been working on DOSA, which is Diagnostics for a One Health User-Driven Solution for AMR. And we had three settings, dairy, aquaculture and human setting. And again, one of the things that we've brought to this project is, in a way, when medical technologies are conceived, they are thought of as the technology. And what we bring as service designers, so I've just spoken about how we're facilitating this co-creation of knowledge. But we also actually have a role in terms of if you're developing a technology, how do we make that really meaningful and relevant to the users? But also, more importantly, how do we build the service around that technology? In other words, we don't just want a test to be a test. What we have to understand is how actually... How is that test going to be used? Who by? What sort of information it's going to give them? How can that information actually, again, strengthen the system? Is it actually about being used to improve knowledge around prevention? Is it around giving individuals, women in particular, knowledge about how to know themselves in terms of their own health? How can we direct people through the touch points that we create around that technology to direct them to the correct healthcare pathway, which isn't about taking antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And how we design that in a way that actually reflects the challenges in their lives. So it might be, you know, the travel distance or having to wait around and hang around a healthcare centre. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a technology. What we try to do is build an ecosystem mm -hmm. of touch points that will in a way reinforce particular messages and behaviors and systems 
to again address AMR. Yeah, and in this case, from the point of view of the use of diagnostics, yes. right, to reduce the use of antibiotics yeah. as well. This is interesting. We had at the center, at our center, a PhD student that she was also in one of her ethnographic approaches paper looking into the barriers for proper use of diagnostics in one hospital in yeah. India. And when she presented her results were exactly about that. It's like, you know, the lost wages, how much they had to travel, how much they had to wait, even how difficult it was to find the laboratory within the Absolutely. institution. These are things that are kind of like hidden in between. It's not just as simple as you create the technology, someone pays for the technology and put it there. There yeah. are all these very granular yeah. changes, right, that are needed in order for the new innovation to be used to their full capacity. Yeah. And I think that's something that maybe some people that are working on the other end completely, not the user end, but the developing end, they don't really think in the day-to-day -day work, right? I mean, one thing we found is there are lots of assumptions, especially if you're trained in technology. And that tends to be a very Eurocentric view of what technology is. And it's people in clean labs with water and electricity. And actually, the reality is a, a diagnostic context for LMICs is that there won't be any running water. The likelihood is the electricity, if they even have it, will be really unstable. So actually then there's all sorts of performance issues, which actually you just assume as givens in the West, which are going to be really, really inappropriate. And it's not just that. You've touched on the important thing. Do people even come to that centre in the first instance to actually be in a position to have that test. Mm -hmm. What's stopping them? That perhaps they don't even understand that actually there is something wrong. We've, I mean, with the DOSA project, with the community tests that we've created, what we identified is that UTI, again, it's a medical term, not understandable by the community. So when we started the field work, the response was there's no UTI, no UTI. However, when we said we visualized the symptoms and we gave symptom cards around, all the women in the focus groups, they mm -hmm. sat up and they, go, they started pointing and they were going, yes, yes, yes. And actually the whole community, particularly if the women, suffer ongoing UTI symptoms and it's called tetrangi. It's a local word. Mm -hmm. So actually where you're getting insight then is not about our concept of UTI going to a doctor, even having the language to describe what, what it is. What it is mm -hmm. because, and the fact that the doctor's a male doctor and you're in a very conservative culture, mm -hmm. there are all these other cultural dimensions. Trust issues. And Trust issues. Can you travel on your own? So by even having the visualization card, which is part of our solution, immediately it gives a way for the women to mediate the conversation around the symptoms and they can take that as part of their touch point to the doctor. To the doctor, mm -hmm. yeah. That's very interesting. I, I read a little bit about your background and you also have published in communications. And yeah. I feel like this that you're telling us right now about just changing from a medical term that nobody understands yeah. to a um, car that has a visual object mm. that can be relatable is really important when we're trying to, to reach out to as many people as possible. Again, one thing that we, you know, we, what we've done in terms of the development, we've done a lot of co-design with the Ashes. And these are accredited social health activists who are the most amazing group of women on the ground in the villages, but they're connected to the primary healthcare centres. And really, we built very good relationships with them. But we've provided them really early on through our focus group, visual material, 
And they've also very kindly, and because we really have supported the project, they've become part of the research team. So mm-hmm. we created visual data sheets, especially during COVID, and we provided prototypes of the test. We also want to amplify natural remedies, which are in, there's knowledge in the community around alleviating the symptoms, but also potentially the prevention. So we've created a card of natural remedies but you will also record your test result on that. So you can take that to the doctor. Mm -hmm. But with the ashes, we've created, again, through the prototypes. So all the time you're giving something tangible to people, going back to your point about communication, we're not just talking abstractly. We can say, actually, when we've discussed it, this is what what we think we're after. And they go, well, I think this works. Actually, this would be very good. Mm -hmm. Or if we, as a supervisor, I'd like my supervisor's name because then actually I know that this is my team. So all the time there's a dialogue going on mm-hmm. with the people you're designing you're designing with. Yeah. I wanted to maybe do an exercise here since we talk about communication. You know, pod- podcast is a hard platform because, you know, you are only relying on words, yeah. so to speak. But let's imagine ourselves that we are going into this journey of co creating for uh Uh, easier communication with someone in in a Indian village. Yeah. So how would uh, that path look like and what kind of people would you be working with? So the first thing, um, when we, uh, you're talking around the area of AMR, for mm-hmm. example. So one of the first things is to understand the context. You really want to try and understand also where does trust lie in the community? Because I think one thing that we often take for granted, again, from a sort of Western or Eurocentric perspective, is that we have the right to go into communities and talk about very sensitive subjects, extract the information, and then that's it. Go home. Yeah. Go home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we were to reverse that and think, well, what would the equivalent look like in the UK or Sweden? I think people would be absolutely like resistant to this. So I think the first thing is we always go in with the idea that you've got to build trust and relationship. And you Mm -hmm. do that through gatekeepers. You in this case, it was the ashes. And then it's actually about opening up the conversations, not about this is AMR. This is antibiotics, because, of course, as we discovered today with uh, the PhD examination, is that actually these are terms that aren't even, they're not familiar, they're not understood. They don't mean anything per se. It's medicines. I want to feel well. I'm having excruciating pain. I have a fever. So that's why we started off very much on sort of visualizing. Mm -hmm. And then actually, as we started developing ideas with the ashes, we then did some very simple storyboards. Mm -hmm. This is you. And we took them through the storyboards. Mm-hmm. And then there, were, there was, again, lots of discussion. This is possible. Yes, this would be really exciting. Imagine if. And so then instead of going in, and also there's a very, it's a very, I use the word equitable again. But if somebody goes in with a list of instructions or guidelines, that person seems to have the power mm-hmm. and often does. When you go in with a set of drawings and you put that down, And you say, what do you think about this narrative? Everybody can join in. Yeah, it is a, it's a community exercise. Absolutely. Rather than a directional, you should be yeah. doing. It's a collective effort, an endeavor where everybody can, has a sort of, they might say, I don't understand what, what's going on here. But it's not one person holding a piece of paper, giving a one directional list of this is what's going to happen because I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I completely understand. That's that's very en enlightening and uh, very inspirational as well. I know that those are projects still going on, but can you tell us some of the preliminary results or some of the insights that you have learned from this? So one of the things which has actually been, you know, this sounds very unresearch-like, but I've, I've actually found very emotional and rewarding. The Ashes have responded so positively for being involved and they've really enjoyed being involved because they feel that they've really learnt about the symptoms of UTI. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they were dealing with this. But what we've done is made it very tangible with these visualization cards. And that the first bit of evidence that came through on that is when we were doing early co-design sessions with them, we couldn't leave the cards behind. But they had, we gave them um, notebooks and they were all copying them down. Mm -hmm. And then since then, they have, because they did a beautiful job during COVID, where they became active researchers for us, where they went out in the field, they had conversations using our prototypes. And in fact, they've now got the visualization card material. And they told us that other ashes are coming from other PhDs and saying, can you tell us? about what you learned. We want to know as well. And then from the community side, so when Till and I were last in India, and again, working with great field workers from Assam University, this is not just us, this is really such a collaborative effort. The Ashes said that the feedback from the community, from the walkthroughs, was that the women felt less depressed and less anxious. And I was saying, oh, how is this? This is, you know... And this wasn't just one, it, was, it came through a number of the ashes on the ground where they said lots of women were worrying that actually they were having these symptoms. They thought it was so much more serious. They didn't appreciate that this could be treated or actually it could be prevented. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of them had really sort of started taking, increasing their water intake, but there was a sort of sense of, there was a sort of anxiety with many women that they were faced with these recurring issues and they actually didn't even know how to start having a conversation. And they were they were they thought it was far worse. Some of them thought it was cancer. Mm -hmm. And they were they were actually in fear. Of course, yeah, because you are suffering from something that you don't know why it is and yeah. how it works and even if you can do something about it. And then this is an example of like knowledge is power right completely they yeah. know about this and now there's like okay I, there is ways i can things i can do so it doesn't happen but if it happens there is these other things that Ooh. i can take and those treatments that are available uh, that's beautiful that's really nice and we have actually also built into the test kit information around prevention so and then also um, with the prevention we've also included information and not about not buying antibiotics over the counter that actually this is a practice at the moment that actually this is inadvisable that the ideal you know the situation is that you can be fast tracked once you've had this test if it's positive after your four days you go to the PHC and this is where we're trying to get more system change from the district health commissions is there a way that you turn up at the PHC instead of having to queue for four hours, you can show this and actually there'll be a fast track system. Mm -hmm. So there's some benefit to it yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Lovely. Um, to continue with the interview, I'm moving into your 
personal perspectives on the area of AMR, I would like to ask from the experience that you have and the time that you've been working both in the UK and mm. the low and middle income countries, what is something that you would like to see more of? What is kind of like your wish list? I think there is still a real problem with disciplines coming together. <laughs> and and there's also a real hierarchy within academia about what counts and what doesn't count. Mm -hmm. And action research is very much considered to be inferior to what I'd call the more established research approaches where you're talking about representation, uh, representational sample sizes. And actually, really what you need to do is get as close to the communities as possible. And of course, those are in conflict because there's lots of issues, you know, around biases, which we're very mindful of. However, with action research, if you're looking at putting in interventions, you cannot do it from a top-down, distant, what you need is a dialogue. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's so hard? So I think there are cultural issues. So from my own background, we come very much through, you know, we're an art and design institute, scientists and I use the word scientist very generically here, <laughs> yeah. tend to think that design is somehow, it's another art subject. It's lots of people with paintbrushes making a mess on one hand. On the other hand, and I know this, design actually is a very technical subject. It's very human-centered. It's also, in terms of when we think of design, you know, people tend to think about it as, as a way of, oh, you need to make my slides look nicer. <laughs> But they don't see it as having a role within more systemic contexts. So just as there are sort of misunderstandings from the different disciplines about what we're contributing. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly within design, especially when it's come from art school practices, mm -hmm. it's somehow considered to be very flaky and very sort of fluffy in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. I I have a particular interest in arts as well. Okay. And I always say that art and science are more alike than a lot of people want to admit in the way of like ways of thinking, ways of approaching it, ways of like working with it and even like how people might relate to each other as well. So <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that is beginning to change now. I think we are reaching a point where this sort of this separation and these different ontological perspectives To really get to a sort of convergence, we need the messiness that comes through the social sciences and also designerly ways of working, which are very good at dealing with uncertainty, which mm -hmm. is another thing within service design. We are good with not knowing what the endpoint is because we iterate and we're constantly... It's part of the pro process. It's a part of a process. So we put a lot of focus on that, whereas actually on the science side, it's looking, for, in a way, it's sort of looking for certainty. It's yeah. looking for clean answers. But actually when you can bring them together, it is very remarkable. It is, it is. I Yeah, I agree that science or the hardcore science, they are looking for sanctity, but they also look in this interface of the creativity and being yeah. daring and, and the mess of like what is it that is working or not working you know yeah. like that in those regards i think it's quite similar and people could understand each other if they put it at that kind of let's say common ground i, I think you're right i actually think you know sometimes also the language that we use from a design background is that we sort of say oh you know we're i think scientists are very creative but i think also scientists do use very visual methods the whole time as yeah. well they're just visual methods that have very specialized whereas i think from designerly approach we're looking at actually how can we relate 
this complexity, whether it's through prototypes, whether it's through storyboards, whether it's speculative futures, mm-hmm. where so we're sort of trying to push the imaginary sometimes. Mm. Whereas I think with science, of course, it is visual, but it's it's for a tighter audience. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it is for a tighter audience. <laughs> we are running out of time. I'm very grateful that you were able to squeeze us in in yeah. this big, uh, busy agenda that you yeah. have in your visit to Uppsala. But uh, before we sign off, I would like to just open up the uh, audio stage for you if you want to bring anything else to our audience today. Well, I think it, it's really exciting, the fact that, I mean, on the DOSA project, as a service design, it's been probably, as a project, it was immensely complex with these three settings. And I think one of the, the things that we have learned is that there are these different roles that design can play in terms of producing the artifact, the prototypes, but also, and I think in this transdisciplinary space, we have a very key role around this co-creation of knowledge between different actors mm-hmm. and, and through that also building relationships. So... To have been given the space to do that on such, as I said, a demanding project, I think is a first for me, but also the DOSA team members. I think actually it's, you know, we've got good evidence to show that there is a need for this sort of crossing of practices. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's so impactful as mm. well, right, for, for the project and for the people working in it, working in an in a aspect like mm. antimicrobial resistance and diagnostics and see how these things can bring together. Mm. And I think it's an, an example to follow. Perhaps other projects that come after with some other sort of innovations or interventions mm. can kind of look at how things work for the DOSA project and maybe get some parallels there as well. Yes, and I think, I mean, when I started off this work and I was in a sandpit as the only service designer within a research, huge research event for the grants, and nearly every person who was from a microbiological background or so, they were like, what are you doing here? <laughs> right? So this is what we wanted today, for you to tell us what you are doing here. And, and personally, I learned a lot. And of course, we're going to leave uh, links to the DOSA project mm. and other background material mm. that people can pick around yeah. if they if they want. Mm. But apart from that, I thank you again for your time and hope to see what you are up to in the near future. Thank you. Thank you, Eva. Thank you. Welcome back from the interview. So, Ellen, can you tell us some things that stuck out to you from from this conversation? First and foremost, I really think it was a very interesting interview. It took a completely different turn than I thought it would when I like heard her title and what she's working with. So for me, what really stood out was the concept of designing with people and not for people. Mm-hmm. That really stuck out to me, and that is something I really took with me after the interview. Mm-hmm. The importance of that and moving closer to the communities that you're actually designing and working for, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, getting them a little bit or a lot more involved in the whole process, right? Yes. Like, I mean, throughout the years working in the podcast and talking to people that approach their work in different ways, you realize that if you are in the really user end of things, there is no point on just telling people what to do. You have to really understand them. You have to, and I think it's even better for the researchers that work in these kind of projects, that they know the considerations of the communities they are going to be working for and with, even before the projects are very much along, right? Like you can take informed decisions in the different steps of a project when you have the whole knowledge or as much as knowledge as possible 
throughout and and from the beginning as well. Yes, yeah. for sure. And I mean, it's it's really in everyone's best interest, right? That the things that we do in science is made for the people who are actually going to use it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Correct. Mm. Yes. And a lot of the science out there is not just you know exploratory basic or explaining thin science there's a lot of applied science and there's a lot of translational science as well and i think that examples like alison's work should be you know very motivational for the people working in these kind of areas absolutely on my end one of the things that i loved and i guess knowing me and how much i love communications and how much i love Art as well, as I mentioned, her bringing up that visualizations are really important. And even when later in the interview, she went to the point that visualizations are something that social scientists and natural scientists have in common, even though they, maybe the visualizations methods are a bit different, we still rely on this kind of support to communicate. Mm-hmm. And it is true. I mean, we talk a lot about one image is worth a thousand mm-hmm. words, right? That's Everyone knows about that. But it is true. Like, we are able to relate to one another much more when we really understand what we want to say. And I think visualizations can really help. Alison was mentioning, you know, how something so complex like antimicrobial resistance or UTIs, mm-hmm. urinary tract infections, you come to a community and ask them if they are aware of this or they are suffering of this and... If they don't understand what you mean, like you really cannot get anywhere. So by putting this into a way that it's more approachable, that's how you get the knowledge. Yeah, and I mean, that also connects to something I thought about, which is the access to knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. That I think many of us who are in this bubble of what we are working with are so used to that everyone understands what you're talking about because everyone is so into these concepts. But then you realize that that is not the case, right? And I mean, that is also something that I think is so lovely with this podcast, that we make it so more accessible mm-hmm. for everyone. That's um, the goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I really think you have succeeded so far. <laughs> yeah, so the access to knowledge, and in the case of the UTIs, like the access to knowledge about your own health, mm-hmm. which I think so many of us take so much for granted. I feel like I am entitled to know about my own health in a way that I realize now that that is not the case everywhere. Yeah, right. And maybe also the type of knowledge, if it's more technical or less technical, depending on what we had had access to. So, yeah, I know for me, it was uh, eye opening interview, I have to say. And like you were saying, I knew a little bit about her background. I read some of the things that she had published, but I was still very eager to kind of get in depth with her. Like, how do you go from something so foreign in principle, like design, which, you know, we think about architects and we think about products and objects and these beautiful things that we look at. How do you move from that to something that is service oriented and that it has to do with AMR as mm. well? And her work with the nurses in the UK mm. and with the DOSA project, you can really see how important that kind of work and the kind of knowledge that service design and designers have is to those kind of projects, right? Yeah, I mean, especially when she talked about the project with the nurses, Mm -hmm. so much fell into place. (laughs) Right. Like this, of course, we should talk to the people who work closest with the AMR problem to see where we can actually, like, find pain points, like where can we actually make a difference? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. And one last thing that I want to bring up is the future prospects that she had. Mm -hmm. So like the um, disciplinaries coming together, I think that was a very important point that she made because I think that's the way forward, right? Mm -hmm. That we need to connect more in between the the different disciplinaries that we have. Yeah, I mean, I think... uh her work it's a beautiful example of how interdisciplinary work kind of works <laughs> you know like her mentioning you know this idea that i mean this big room with all these natural scientists and microbiologists and everybody asking like but why are you here what is it and i think we are moving into a space where it is recognized that there are skills and there are points of views and perspectives of different disciplines that can really benefit each other in these very complex and very big projects. As she was saying, the DOSA project is not only the UTI and the human health part, there is also this aquaculture part, there is also this agricultural part, and that is humongous. There is so many people from different angles and walks of life that are involved in these very big systems Mm -hmm. that in the end, they give us better health, they give us the food that we need, and they also hopefully take care of the environment. And this is huge. Mm -hmm. So I think finding the ways to talk to each other and to work together is really the way forward. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. (laughs) Great. And with this, we're going to move on to the news section, which today we're bringing you two research articles, one that is kind of very close to us and another one that is a little bit more global. See you there. Welcome to the news for this March episode. So today we are going to start with a research article published in the journal PLOS Global Public Health with the title Global Trends in Antimicrobial Use in Food Producing Animals 2020 to 2030. And this was published in February 1st of this year, 2023. We thought it was pretty important that we talked about this paper in particular because There seems to be a a lack of data and a lack of knowledge in order to see how much antimicrobials are actually being used in agriculture, in aquaculture, you know, in these processes where we use them to either produce foods, right? Mm. So the background situation to this paper is that we do have some knowledge on the antimicrobials that are being used in animals, but it's quite scarce and is maybe not the best that it could be, right? Mm -hmm. We currently have since 2016 the work done by the World Organization of Animal Health, WORHA, which used to be the previous office international de episodes, and now it's called WORHA. And this uh, organization gathers data on a voluntary basis from up to 157 countries where those countries voluntarily give to this agency their data. And then what this agency does is to kind of pull that data into five big regions and then it publishes the numbers that they got. There is also a number of countries that publicly make their data available, but these are only 42 countries around the world. As you know, we're many more than 42 countries around the world, right? So the the backdrop of this is that in order to really 
have correct information that can inform us of how the food producing system is using antimicrobials. How much? Are there any efforts or interventions that are included in national action plans having any effect in the use of antimicrobial usage? To answer all these questions and to also see where things are not working properly and more intervention needs to be used, we need to have the data, right? Mm -hmm. But it seems like it's a bit hard to get this data. So what they did in this paper was to not only look retrospectively to the 2020 data, which is really the data that happened two years ago, but also go a step further and try to predict what the usage is going to be at the end of the decade, in 2030. Is it going to be less? Is predicted to be less than it was in 2020? Is predicted to be more? And the way that they have gone about this, because the data that is available is so scarce and it's also so pooled and aggregated, is that they have used statistical models together in combination with the country reports that they could get a hold of, the regional totals of antimicrobial use from the WUHA, and also data from on-farm antimicrobial use surveys, to estimate the food producing animals for 229 countries or territories in 2020. So they went even beyond, you know, what the WUHA was able to pull before. And by combining these different source of data, they were able to estimate for 229 countries and territories in 2020 and predict for the whole global region, the whole world, mm -hmm. what would be looking like in 2030. So in terms of results, this paper is straightforward. You know, what are the results? They found that globally there is an estimation of 999,000 tons of active antimicrobials being used in food producing animals. And that they project that there's going to be an increase of 8% over the rest of the decade up to 2030. So these are the raw results of it, right? They also were able to map this prediction, right? And kind of find where are the hotspots of antimicrobial use in the different parts of the world, right? But the cool thing about this article for me, at least, is not only, you know, presenting this data, which obviously is important, and trying to get as much resolution on the data as possible mm. to try to see, okay, where more action is needed, has the action that's been taken in different places have an effect? Can we understand why some regions have increased in the use of antimicrobials versus other regions reducing? And, you know, maybe also relating this data with the epidemiological data that we might have, right? But to me, apart from this data that is being presented, the cool thing about this paper is, you know, what does it mean? Like, why is it so important that we are actually getting this data? You know, we know that so far we don't have a lot of evidence or a lot of knowledge on how the antimicrobial use in animals actually is, for example, affecting human health. So in an instance where we will have much more detailed data about the antimicrobial use in animal producing industries, we could see if there is any effect also in human pathogens. Mm. And of course, an important thing is that even if the case would be that the antimicrobial use in animals does not affect at all human pathogens and human health, there is the question of an increase of antimicrobial resistance in the animal sector is going to affect animal production, is going to be affecting animal welfare. So we do need to have this data in order to make really the world a better place for our animals and for the people that need the animals because they need the food. Yes. And I mean, 
for me, that was one of the main takeaways of this paper that we need more data, right? Yeah. <laughs> we, need, we need a better way to collect this data and make it available for people to see. And I wonder, you know, this is more of, of course, on a personal note. Why is it so hard for countries to really publish this yeah. data? So is it because they don't have the systems mm. in place to actually gather it? You know, yeah. like, is it because they are being somehow secretive about it because they don't want to make that public knowledge? Like, for example, you could think of countries that are exporting meat to other places mm. if they are very open with how much antimicrobials are using. Mm. Maybe the countries that used to import their meat might not want to import mm -hmm. their meat. So it's, it's a very intricate situation mm. as well. It's not just the role like we, we could always say, yeah make the available data, we're not going to judge. But it's not really how it works, right? No, it isn't. And I mean, I think that a little bit of this might connect into what Alison was talking about. Like, now you have this good monitoring in Europe from the mm -hmm. paper, I understood, but how we want to bring that to other parts of the world, maybe without really thinking about how that would work. Yeah, exactly. If yeah. you understand what I mean, that yeah. maybe it's a systematic thing as well, that it needs to be made in another way, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I agree with you totally. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, so we need to work with those places. Mm -hmm. What do they need in order to gather the data and make it more available, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's true. So one takeaway that I thought was very interesting in this paper, they listed as one of the limitations that they only look into four species, was cattle, chicken, pigs and sheep. But that they had one limitation that they didn't look into other species mm -hmm. and that rabbits was one of those. That, that it seems to actually been using a lot of antimicrobials yeah, in some places, which I was also surprised. Yeah, right? that was very interesting, I think. Because I think one thing we didn't mention, so they look at two dimensions of antimicrobial use. And one is overall use, you know, like in raw tons, mm. how many tons have been used. But another parameter to look at is the intensity of antimicrobial use, mm. which depends on the mass mm -hmm. of the animal. So mm. obviously a cow is very different than a rabbit mm. or very different than a chicken, mm. right? So we need to not only look at the overall raw use of antimicrobials, but also how much antimicrobials are used per any unit that you want to use that relates to the animal, right? Yeah. So here is where they see that actually in rabbits, it seems like there's a lot of intensive use of antimicrobials yeah. per kilogram of the animal, right? Yeah. I was also surprised. I guess maybe they the protocols in rabbit farming is different than mm. in other ones. It could be a lot of things like that. But I mean, that, right? that might also mean that the antibiotics is being used in other places than we thought about, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, and that might be important to pin down those places as well. Yeah, I think you're right. Overall, I think it was a very important paper yes. to just not be aware that it's out there. Obviously, another thing is that the prediction that it's going to increase by 8%. It's kind of like these predictions tend to be worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really take into account our country is going to do something to reduce antimicrobial yeah. use. There's going to be new regulations being in place. And, you know, when the Agenda 2030 and the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals started, 2030 felt very far in the future, mm -hmm. right? And now we're already in 2023, which is like, well, there's seven years only to 2030. And we don't know how things are going to be. These estimations might hold true. Or it might be that we just become really much better at using antimicrobials to a lesser extent in mm -hmm. the animal producing industries. 
but we will we will see. Yeah. But it's good that this paper is out and it's good that there is conversation about it and that we're seeing how how the availability of data is really important. Yes. So with that, we move on to our second article of today. And Eileen, I'm very happy that you're going to be presenting this paper because you are also kind of close to it. Can you tell us about this article? Yes, the article is Antibiotic Use During Coronavirus Disease 2019, Intensive Care Unit Shaped Multidrug Resistance Bacteriuria, a Swedish Longitudinal Prospective Study. So it was published in Frontiers in Medicine, the 7th of February. Mm -hmm. But it's also published by a colleague Mm -hmm. of us, Mm -hmm. Philip Carlson. Yes. Which makes this even more fun, I think. (laughs) So the study is about intensive care unit patients in Uppsala University Hospital uh, during the corona outbreak. So in this study, they have been monitoring patients in the ICU in the Uppsala University Hospital during the corona outbreak. And since patients in the ICU are most often put into a catheter, Uh, they have been looking for bacteria in their urine. So what they have done is that they have collected urine samples from these patients three times a week, and they have plated the samples and looked to see if they have any growth in the urine. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to see if they could make a connection between the presence of bacteria in the urine and the length of stay for the patients in the ICU. Mm -hmm. So what they actually found was a correlation between the length of stay for the patients and the presence of bacteria Mm -hmm. in the urine. Mm -hmm. And this is very interesting since this is the first study of its kind, a longitudinal prospective study of uh, corona patients in the ICU Mm -hmm. and uh, bacteriuria. So yeah, I think it was a very, very interesting paper. Also the fact that they could make this correlation between presence of bacteria and the length of stay, but also the fact that they characterized the bacteria they found and uh, found out which species they were. Mm -hmm. And the most common bacteria in UTIs is E. coli. Generally, right? Generally, yes. Mm -hmm. But in this case, the intensive care patients with COVID were treated with a lot of antibiotics and specifically broad spectrum antibiotics that hits really hard against the gram negative bacteria, which E. coli are a part of. So in this case, they found a lot of enterococci, Mm -hmm. which is a gram positive bacteria. Mm -hmm. And that might be due to the fact that the patients were treated with a lot of beta-lactam antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the thing that was also very interesting is that when they found E. coli, they were together with the enterococci, right? Mm -hmm. So there might be a correlation between the presence of enterococci and the ability of the E. coli to survive despite being treated with antibiotics that should kill them. Right, Right, because they were sensitive, right? The E. coli that they found were actually sensitive to the potential antibiotics they were being given because they were in the ICU. So the presence of these enterococci somehow maybe it's giving them a protection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it allows for them to actually be present there. Yeah, and they also put in the article that there is some studies in vitro uh, regarding enterococci and E. coli and biofilms. So there may be something to that, uh, mm-hmm. that the enterococci creates biofilms that protects the E. coli in some way. Yeah, so we, a few episodes back, we had someone that uh, was studying biofilms and evolution of bacteria in biofilms, and it was... we did talk about how we maybe are not aware of how important biofilms actually are in a lot of the diseases that we have 
with us day in, day out, like respiratory diseases and urinary tract infections. And in this case, as you were mentioning, these patients are normally in the ICU with a catheter mm. in the urethra to get rid of the urine. And we know that those catheters can be a good place for bacteria to just settle there and mm. form this biofilm. Mm. So what is cool about this paper to me as well is that it might be showing that this ecology mm -hmm. of different bacterial species might be very important for the course of a potential infection like a urinary tract infection mm. and having the knowledge of how these things happen and what bacteria come first and then what does it allow for other bacteria to do can guide us on what kind of treatments or what kind of things we might be mm -hmm. looking for right yeah, for sure yeah So it's really cool work by yes. our colleagues here. Yes. And I always think when I see these COVID-19 papers that are not really about COVID-19, but they are about other things, like in this case, antibacterial use and UTIs, how quickly the researchers have to have responded to the crisis, right? That yes. is just like, okay, now this is happening. We have a cohort of patients in the ICU. It could be really interesting to actually look into this data. Yes. And that's something that you have to do it then and there. It's not something that you can leave for later. You have to come up with a research question. You have to come up with a project. You have to apply for ethical permissions. And then you have to undergo it. And this has to be done in a short amount of time. <laughs> yes. And I mean, in these cases, they're also being done in a situation of crisis, yeah, right? Correct. To add on top of everything. Yeah. I thought that one last detail that I think is kind of cool to bring up that I liked to have seen written in the paper is that obviously they're looking about is there bacteriuria, which means bacteria in the urine, which can mean or not mean urinary tract infection, but just to say, is the bacteria there? And they obviously see a very nice positive correlation. The longer you are in the hospital, the higher the risk that you will have uh, bacteria in your urine. But then they mention that it seems like people that survive COVID, they have more chances to have gotten bacteriuria. Mm. But that's actually because what is called the survivor bias, which is obviously if someone was in the ICU and they died at some point from COVID-19, they weren't at the hospital for as long as the people that in the end survive it. Mm -hmm. And that's why you might get this data that seems like, oh, if you survive COVID-19, you might have had a UTI. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it's really related to no. that. It's just because of this survivor bias. And I think sometimes when we're looking health data and results we might not think about this survivor bias no. and I think it was very I really enjoyed that I just read that sentence in the paper it's like yeah this might be because of survivor bias you know it's like yeah it's, probably right it's good <laughs> that someone puts it in writing yeah right it's nice to see that knowledge for sure All right, so with this, I think we're done for this uh, 46th episode. And as I said at the beginning, the first episode for Ellen here. Ellen, how do you feel in the end of this episode? I feel good. It was very fun, but it's a growing process. So I think I will be more and more comfortable the more episodes we record. Yeah. But I'm very excited to be here. For sure. I really hope that you guys at home also uh, like our new voice and our new colleague here at the AMR studio and hope to have you back with us on the next episode. Bye. Bye. 
For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. <laughs>